Well, it's good to be uh, back with you. I've been uh, away for a few weeks and uh, was grateful for Josh filling in and then John for a couple weeks. And then last week, uh, Bill Berry, our elder chairman. And uh, if you remember Bill's message last week, I really enjoyed listening uh, to that where he was describing or portraying God, which scripture does, as a father rather than a landlord. I love the, the song we uh, saying just a few songs back about him being a good, good father. And this picture that Bill painted last week of not a contractual relationship with God, but seeing him from a, a form of a, a relationship. And Scripture is filled with different parallels. One of the other ones that maybe you can relate with, maybe not the younger group up front here, is the, the parallel to seeing relationally, seeing our relationship with him as like a marriage relation, relationship. We see the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. And maybe that helps make a little bit more sense in your own mind. I know my wife and I were married 16 years and so I've learned a little bit about marriage along the way. One thing I've learned is that it's a relationship that has to be fostered. It's definitely some things that you can do to obstruct intimacy. Have any guys here uh, learned that lesson maybe the hard way? My wife still teases me about some years back for our anniversary. I had the perfect gift. I'm like, all right, I, I know what she's really going to enjoy. She didn't like this, this old vacuum cleaner that we had. <laughs> you can see where this is going. And they had this sweet one that had like the ball that pivoted. I was like, she's going to love this for our anniversary. And... I remember when she saw that that was the gift, I remember her seeing, she's like, you got me, she replayed it in my mind, you got me a vacuum cleaner for our anniversary. So, so I've, I've learned some things over the years as to how to foster that relationship and some things that clearly don't go very well, but a little bit more on a serious note, there's other things that we have to figure out in our relationship as to how to deal with sin because two sinners living together is pretty much a guarantee of sin issues. If you're a, a, a marriage counselor, you'd probably be familiar with Chip Ingram. He's written a lot of books on marriage and spoken a lot on the, the topic. And he describes how we typically deal with offense and sin in our life. Basically puts people in different categories of how the more, most usual way we respond to it. Describes them as stuffers, leakers, or spewers, stuffers being those who hold in anger issues and they're frustrated and, and, and choose to let that just build, build, build. Maybe you know someone like that that won't say anything, but you know it's building up. Leakers don't necessarily address the issue, but they leak their bitterness and malice wherever they go, and it seems to come out at the most inopportune times. Spewers, this one makes sense too, is this is the person that explodes about just about anything, easily angered. There's different ways that we respond to sin and offense in our life. And what any marriage counselor would direct you to, none of those being a good idea. The best idea would be what? To talk through things, to work through issues, to communicate, to share feelings. Do I sound like I'm learning a few things along the way here? To own our mistakes. I've blown it. I was wrong. If guys could get that right. Uh, own our mistakes. To extend or receive forgiveness. All critical things in developing a healthy marriage relationship. 
But here this morning, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about figuring out how to deal with our sin as it relates to our relationship with God. How do we respond? How do we think, feel, and respond to our sin in that relationship? In other words, a more casual way of describing it is what we do when we blow it. What we do when we blow it. That's an important thing to understand how to deal with our sins. What we do when we blow it. Scripture has some great examples and some really poor examples of how to respond to our sin. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Would you say they dealt with their sin well or poorly? They denied their sin and it didn't really end very well for them. David, on the other hand, as we've been in this series, he definitely is somebody that blew it but he actually responded to sin in a healthy way. We're going to be learning from his story here this morning, but before we dive in, if you'd join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your text, for your word and this text on just how practical it is for us to learn and grow in our understanding of appropriate response to when we mess up. If anyone else in this room is like me, that happens more often than we'd like, an appropriate biblical response to sin in our life. I pray that you teach us, that you'd stretch us, that we wouldn't sit here thinking we have it all figured out, that we'd show up with a teachable spirit, that you may be able to work in us, inform us, and shape us in this area. We invite you here now, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. We're going to spend the primary time here today in Psalm 51. If you wouldn't mind grabbing a Bible or whatever it is, you used to look at scripture. We're going to be spending time just breaking down that passage, but the first thing that you'll notice when you get there, Psalm 51, is the title, the heading, if you will, says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. It's one of the few psalms where we know for sure one who wrote it and definitely why he wrote it. David, as you remember last week in our overview, or just your familiarity with the story, had really, really blown it. You know the, the account where he had, uh, had seen Bathsheba bathing, made the choice to call for her, not being his wife, called for her, had sex with her, got her pregnant, and then in an attempt to cover his sin, had Uriah murdered, Interesting to think that the person that wrote these beautiful psalms that we enjoy and read with that same pen wrote a letter to have Uriah executed on the front lines. Just when he's thinking that he's gotten away with it, it's about a year after that, that Nathan, the prophet, finally confronts him in his sin. I think it's interesting to some degree how often many people think, you know what? The dust is settled, I've moved past this, the sin is kind of behind me, but there's someone who doesn't seem to forget. In this case, God confronts him through Nathan. It's interesting, maybe you read the same thing or article this week of this, I didn't even know it existed, a a cheater's website. Did you read about this this week? A cheater's website that was hacked and all of the people that were on its names disclosed with the threat of it being released to the public, the tagline for this website is life is short, have an affair. Just breaks your heart. The thing that really stunned me out of that was the fact that you have, what you had to do is as a married person, fill out your profile and it had 
37 million people that had filled out profiles on this website. Crazy to think. Be sure your sins will find you out. Nathan begins with a zinger of a story for David. We don't, it's not in, in Psalm 51. It's found in 2 Samuel 12. We'll read this together. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man in this illustration. This example, this picture of a lamb that was taken was the picture of of David, who had many wives, had everything you could hope for, but still desired and stole the wife of Uriah. David's left there. Can you imagine his jaw? I imagine uh, these, I have these pictures of cartoons I've seen where it like drops to the floor. David's there and he's, he's busted. He's clearly guilty of this sin. There's nothing that he can do. And it's interesting, Psalm 51 call, captures his cry out to God. But I also find it interesting that his cry out to God didn't necessarily change his consequences. Remember last week, the main lesson or main point was the idea that we reap what we sow. The things that we sow, there are consequences to our actions. In fact, I was talking with some friends this week about how many of sins in our, or how many different issues in our life, if you really trace it back, were born out of a sin issue. Think of our issues globally. Think of our issues. Think of the conflicts and things you've dealt with in your own life. Most, if not all, can be pointed back to some degree of sin, sometimes even on our behalf or someone that we're close to. Sin has consequences. But we see from David that regardless of the outcomes that he's going to face, he still has an appropriate position before God. We're going to look at his five different aspects of his healthy response, how he deals with his sin. We can learn from each of these. First one of verse one, we're going to see that he turns to the only one who can forgive. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Interesting to see he really starts in the best place, the, pra- the place that makes the most sense. There's no sense, if you think about it, trying to hide something from someone that knows everything. So he appropriately goes before God, and what does he do? He pleads for something that all of us need. He pleads for mercy. Pleads for mercy, not getting what we deserve. This is opposite of justice, We cry for justice for everyone except 
ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Remember David's response to Nathan's story? What did he say about the guy that had stolen the lamb? What did he scream out for? He's like, he must die. Wait, before he dies, he's got to pay back four times as much. He, he demanded justice for that person. But here with his own sin, he's pleading for mercy. Because that's really positionally all we can do before a perfect God. I think it's interesting. Our sin, might jot this down, our sin always looks worse on others. Our sin always looks worse on others. Think about a tangible way we see this. I don't know if any of you ever make a drive towards Los Angeles. You're coming on the 101, getting closer to the 405, which is what? A guaranteed gridlock, right? And the appropriate way to respond to getting on the 405 is to Get over to the far right lane and, and patiently wait your turn in line, right? That's the way it's supposed to be executed. But what do people do? People wait, including maybe even you. People wait till the very last second. They try to time it till maybe somebody's not paying attention. They can just cut in to that open spot. Have we done that? Here's the time of confession as a church. Yes, yes. When someone else is doing it, what do we say? Look at that jerk not waiting in line and cutting in. That's what we say, right? But what if we're running late to a barbecue or an event downtown or whatever it may be getting to the airport? I had to do it. I'm justified in that. I was going to be three to five minutes late for this event. Like, I, I had to. Like, it, 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 our excuses are frequent and often in dealing with our stuff, but we're quick to plead for mercy as it relates to me and my own sin. The good news is David appealing to God's character. What does he say? He's appealing to his steadfast love and abundant mercy. The good news is, is that God is more merciful than man. Can you imagine if you were left to the U.S. justice system with your sin and your offenses? If the, if the, if the expectation was perfection and you had to go into court before the U.S. justice system and make an a, attempt, a, a plea for, no way. They had all the facts. What if their facts also included all of your thoughts and intentions, not just the, the video reel of your life? You would be doomed you would unless you had a really good lawyer but you would be you would be doomed because man's justice is more severe than God's God's justice is one of, of steadfast love and abundant mercy that's why David is appealing to that he isn't notice he isn't asking to avoid earthly consequence though he just wants to make sure that his relationship with God is in the right place. There's something for us to learn from that as well. Thinking through how often our appeal to God isn't because we're concerned about the relationship. When I've blown it, the question is, is my greatest desire to restore my relationship with God or to avoid consequence? If we're honest with ourselves, too often we value self-preservation rather than valuing the intimacy of that relationship, what compels us. We see as we continue here that David was more concerned just about being cleansed. Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me 
from my sins. Notice that it isn't assumed or presumed that God would do that. I would say that in present day church world, we have some confusion around this as it relates to the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. I think that some people think that because they're forgiven, ultimately, positionally before God, that there's really no need for confession in their life. But you think through this, you think through even when the disciples went to Jesus Christ as he's, as he's praying and asked him, Jesus, how do you model prayer? What's the appropriate way to come before God? What did, what did Jesus say? He said, well, start by asking for your daily bread and provision. Recognize he's the giver of those things. What's the other thing that he wanted us to do daily? Was to ask to Forgive those who have trespassed, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's, it's part of a natural relationship. It's part of the design is to keep at least on our side in a healthy place. I like this quote by John Piper. The cross doesn't mean we don't ask for forgiveness. It is just the basis for the answer we will get. The cross doesn't mean that we don't ask for forgiveness. It's just the basis for the answer we, would, we will get. Just because we know the answer we're going to get doesn't mean you don't ask for forgiveness. Bring this back to the marriage parallel. Imagine if you, as guys, we'll, we'll pick on the guys a little bit, had a, a guy's weekend. Your wife was away and you had everybody over. Everybody brought some pizza, some uh, uh, adult beverages, maybe not in your home uh, or mine. But uh, imagine everybody that's there after the movies and video games and all that is a complete mess, complete wreck in the house. Everything's turned over, a few broken lamps. Uh, and, and, and what, as the guys are leaving, they were to say to me after this shindig, nice word, you pick up words from your parents over time, <laughs> shindig, uh, what if they're to say, hey, Scott, do you want us to stick around and help clean up? What if my response was, no, it's fine. My wife and I, we made a commitment in marriage. We're committed for the rest of our lives. We're good. There's a covenant there. We've promised till death do us part, no problem. You can, it can be a wreck. They would say, man, you are messed up. You have, you have, you have issues. You can't lean into your positional relationship with your wife. Sure, you have a, a covenant. Sure, you have a partnership. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But there's still things that you do to keep a healthy relationship. The same is true as we think through our relationship with God. It only makes sense that there's things that we do to keep that in a healthy spot. That's why David keeps coming and says, wash me cleanse me, purify me, bring me back to the right. I, I, I feel dirty. Clean me. I appeal to you. Relationship otherwise sours over time. My question for us is, have we been presuming on positional forgiveness too long? Have we been presuming on positional forgiveness too long? It's one of the things that's part of a healthy relationship with God is that when we start noticing our sin, his grace is amplified even more. Otherwise, we start to get kind of numb and callous to us. But when we are, start to recognize like, oh, that's an offense before a perfect God. Thank you for your grace. 
and for your forgiveness. You see, when we start to get numb and presume on his forgiveness, that's when it starts to get kind of calloused and unhealthy. David recognizes the importance of coming before the Lord with his sin. And he doesn't, he doesn't try to belittle it either, does he? He's very clear. Verse 3, he expresses how terrible his sin is. What does he say? He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. See, many people treat sin more like a parking ticket, something that's not such a big deal, something that you just kind of throw in the, the dash, the fine isn't that big, it's doable, rather than appropriately, as God sees it, as stage four cancer. David takes his sin seriously. He doesn't defend it or belittle it. Verse 3, what does it say? He mentions, first he mentions his inability to get it out of his mind. Maybe that's what, where you've been with your sin. Maybe there's an area that you're like, man, I've blown it so bad. I just keep stewing over it because it hasn't been dealt with. I know Jesus died for me and is forgiven, but, but, but I still have this before me. And David in his, this place says, man, he comes before God and recognizes I've sinned against you. It's interesting in verse 4 that he acknowledges that it's only against God. So what makes sin sin is that it's offended God. He's not belittling its hurt on, on uh, Bathsheba or Uriah or the baby that he's going to lose. Notice David acknowledges his own responsibility. Look at the terms that he used. I know my transgressions, my sin, only have I sinned. All of these things have represent personal ownership that's the exact opposite of the tendency in our world our our tendency is to make excuses and to, to to make cases think of adam's response to his sin what did he say this woman you gave me think about that statement for a second one it's a double whammy one this woman it's clearly her fault you gave me it's your fault he's double casting blame in that conversation we tend to do the same thing. What do we blame things on? I did it because they did this to me. If you would have known how he talked to me, you'd understand why I punched him in his eye. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, you would understand that. Or, I was born this way. How often do we hear that one? I was born this way. I grew up in a bad home. You don't understand the environment I was in. It only makes sense that I grew up to follow these patterns that my father set for me. All of these things, not owning our own junk. If anything, verse 4, David vindicates God, not himself. He, say, he describes him blameless in his judgment. He's, he's, he's perfect in his judgment. He draws attention to his sin being inherited not excusing it, this is what's important here. He's not just saying, yeah, I was born with it, it's not my fault. He's pointing more to the fact that, listen, this is affected to me to my very core. This is, this is it's part of the, the uh, inheritance, the depth of my corruption. In other words, I can't fix it. I can't fix it. And that's the crossroads everybody has to come to in order to be ready 
for the gospel message. Coming to that conclusion that I can't fix this or the crossroads everybody needs to come to to come back to the gospel message. He pleads to be made new. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me with the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. It's interesting that David wants more than just forgiveness. He won't be content until he's completely changed from the inside out. What does he point to? Hyssop was a, a long plant used at that time by priests to sprinkle blood on after a cleansing dealing with sacrifice. But David here recognizes this isn't something that somebody else can fix. This is only something I can go before the high priest, God himself, to solve. And what does he request? He requests that something we can learn from this. He requests a clean heart. He requests a clean heart. What a, a beautiful picture, just how sin does that. And we've seen that even in our own lives, how sin just makes it feel mucked up and broken. But here's what the important thing that he says. He says, not, not, not a refurbished heart. He says, create, create in me a clean heart. The word create there is the word bara, which is the same word that's used in Genesis 1. In the Greek, it's the same word used to describe the creation of everything. He said, you're starting from scratch. That's the gospel message. You need a clean heart. He's appealing for God to start new. Not a refurbished heart, a brand new one. What does he ask? He says, cast me not from my, thy presence. Just assure me, in other words, that I won't lose you. Please don't let me drift. Appropriate for us even today. Find it interesting that in this confession, there's never mention of his sexual sin. He doesn't, he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't, he doesn't address that fact. I was listening to John MacArthur talk on this, and he brought up an interesting point. Because sex is not the root issue here. The issue here is the loss of the joy of my salvation. That's why he's asking for it back. You see, when we've lost the joy of our salvation, sex is one of the things that we'll try to fill that cup with. You see, when, it's, when all of a sudden grace is no longer a big deal, when we're running on empty, we look for things like cheaters' websites to appeal to as something that will satisfy. The best preventative way for sin is to make sure that our cup is full, that we're fully basking in the joy of our salvation, the work of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. The ultimate expression of renewal we'll see in verse 13, was to return then to impacting others. Look in verse 13. He commits to impact others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifice of God, listen to this, sacrifices of God 
our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Basically, gist of this section here is that David is not content until his brokenness heals others. See, the truth is, there's power on the other side of sin. When you get to the place where you're on the other side of it and you've seen victory over that, when, when the shackles are off, the potential to impact people is fantastic. My wife and I worked at Judson University for an extended season. Actually, she did. I was along for the ride. But uh, there's a, a vice president that worked there, and it was interesting. Every fall, with the new students coming in, he had a get-together for like a guys-only, students-only get-together where he talked about his former addiction to pornography and sexual sin, and he talked with these guys about how God had restored him, had, had renewed him, how he had seen victory over that. I'll tell you what, there's more guys that can point to those talks as the crossroads where they actually got some, some healthy accountability, where they got some, some, some pieces in place, where they saw victory themselves. Because why? This man, after seeing victory, used that to what? What does the text say? To teach transgressor, transgressors and sinners will return to you. You see the potential, the upside on the other side of this is when we appropriately deal with our sin, you can, you can have an impact. You can influence others' lives. The power and potential there is amazing. So often we think we've blown it too bad that God can't be used, but you think about it, David blew it pretty big, right? Murder, adultery, like cover-up, like, oh, like it sounds like something in our government. Like, you know, like it's a... Uh, that was bad. Uh, but uh, but, but you, you see, like, the, the, the truth is he had really, really messed up. And what? God was willing to restore him, to bring him back, to have influence, to impact again. But one conclusion I love that David leaves with here, and it's one we can leave with today, is the type of, of restoration that we see here can only happen because of a position of humility. He says, listen, these sacrifices, they're not going to mean anything to you, God. None of these things, a bull on the altar, none of these attempts, whatever I'm going to put together isn't going to appease you. The one thing that pleases God is what? What does it say? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God wants to see us broken in a, in, in a place of humility. That doesn't mean that we wallow in our sin and we bask in it. We're, we're under grace. It's figuring out that, that healthy balance be, between celebration of forgiveness and confession of sin. Brokenness is a lifestyle, not an occasion. Brokenness is a lifestyle that we're called to be broken because when we're broken over our sin, all of a sudden, His grace is way bigger, is a way bigger deal to us, right? When we're broken over it, when we're like, yes, God, forgive me. I'm coming to you. Thank you for your grace. When our sin becomes no big deal and we're like stuffers, when we're just holding out, when we're spewers, 
Like, that, that's a bad spot. But when we're comfortably talking with God, coming before Him, God, I blow it again. I need to dip from your well of grace. I need to, I need to drink of that again. Man, I'll tell you what, all of a sudden, the taste of that grace starts to taste a little bit better when there's an appropriate awareness of our sin. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, so much for this text. Thank you so much for your patience and grace to us. I thank you for this picture of an appropriate response to sin. I don't know, God, where we thought that we needed to stop having our hearts broken over our rebellion against God. I thank you so much that you do have a a steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness, and you want to pour that out on us, but forgive us for presuming on that, for not addressing and dealing with issues as they arise on on a daily basis. Forgive me for that. God, I pray that you'd grow us in this area, that you'd stretch us in this, that we'd come before you and make sure that there's nothing. Just like David, his greatest plea was, man, I just don't want to have anything that's separating me from you. Not so concerned about the, about the repercussions other than the damaged relationship. God, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for the work that you did on the cross that, that makes the answer to our pleas for mercy a yes. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Couldn't be a more perfect song there at the end. The picture of just come as you are, lay down your burdens. He wants to have us bask in his grace and forgiveness. Amen. Let's live in that this week. Enjoy a barbecue together. If you don't already have plans, we'd love to have you stick around. God bless you.